You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 282 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, we spent much of the last episode talking about William Tecumseh Sherman's defeat at Chickasaw Bayou, north of Vicksburg, at the end of December 1862. With this show, we'll pick right back up with the story, with what happened in the immediate aftermath of the battle. Well, on December 30th, the day after Chickasaw Bayou, John McClernand arrived in Memphis and discovered that Sherman had gone down the Mississippi River ten days earlier with the troops that he, that is McClernand, had raised and thought he would command. So McClernand set out in pursuit, correctly convinced that he had been outmaneuvered by a clique of West Pointers. He caught up with Sherman at Milliken's Bend and learned of the defeat at Chickasaw Bayou. The next day, January 4, 1863, McClernand assumed command of what he called the Army of the Mississippi. For the next few weeks, McClernand acted as though he was an independent army commander, which is precisely what he considered himself to be. Remember, due to an unfortunate breakdown in federal communications, McClernand was unaware that he was now merely the senior corps commander in Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee. At any rate, another assault against the Walnut Hills was out of the question, so McClernand, Sherman, and David Dixon Porter, the federal naval commander, decided to attack the Confederate position at Arkansas Post, which, back in the olden days, was also apparently called the Post of Arkansas. But anyway, it was an old settlement along the lower Arkansas River. A short time earlier, Confederate forces at the mouth of the Arkansas had captured an unescorted Union transport on the Mississippi River that was carrying coal and ammunition, and that set off alarm bells in the Union High Command. McClernand had been contemplating using his army for an assault on Arkansas Post for some time. And now, following the loss of the transport, he decided to descend on the rebel position with his entire force in order to eliminate the threat to the Union line of communications and supply on the Mississippi. 
As the operation got underway, McClernand informed Samuel Curtis up in St. Louis that he was about to barge into Curtis's department of the Missouri. Curtis welcomed the strike because of his concern for the Union enclave at Helena, Arkansas, which was located on the Mississippi River about 60 miles northeast of Arkansas Post. Curtis was worried about the place because most of Helena's once substantial garrison had been borrowed by Sherman on his way downriver and was now part of McClernand's army. When the Union gunboats and transports steamed away from Vicksburg under a cloud of city smoke, the Confederates were delighted and relieved. Everyone assumed the defeated Yankees were retiring back upriver to Memphis to regroup. As the last of the enemy vessels vanished from sight, a Confederate artilleryman exclaimed, I hope the rascals have found the taking of Vicksburg impracticable and returned to their northern dens. Well, the rascals weren't headed back to Memphis, of course. They were headed for Arkansas Post. That place was garrisoned by about 5,000 Confederate soldiers under the command of Brigadier General Thomas Churchill. Most were dismounted Texas and Arkansas cavalrymen whose ranks had been sadly reduced by disease. In fact, fewer than 3,000 of them were healthy enough to shoulder a weapon and most were equipped with short-range carbines and shotguns instead of rifles. The key to the Confederate position was Fort Hindman, a square earthen structure located on the northwest side of a hairpin curve in the Arkansas River. The fort had only three heavy guns, but they were partially covered with an inch of iron plating, backed by thick wooden planks. So although the rebels had no ironclad gunboat on the Arkansas, they actually had an ironclad fort of sorts. When Churchill detected the Union warships and transports approaching Arkansas Post, he called upon department headquarters in Little Rock for support. But Theophilus Holmes was prone to dither in a crisis, and this he promptly commenced to do informing Churchill that no reinforcements were available, but nevertheless ordering him to, quote, hold out till help arrived, or all dead, end quote. <laughs> then Holmes reversed himself and promised Churchill that help was on the way. Well, Churchill had served under Holmes long enough to understand that he was on his own and so he prepared to defend his position as best he could with what he had. Meanwhile, after steaming up the Mississippi some 200 winding miles, the Union Armada had turned west into the Arkansas River and proceeded another 50 miles upstream. Then, about four miles below Arkansas Post, the transports nosed into the north bank of the river and unloaded men, animals, equipment, and supplies. On January 10th, over 30,000 Union soldiers marched upstream around the hairpin bend. Progress was slow, and there was a good deal of confusion and countermarching. 
McClernand had hoped to outflank the rebel fortifications by swinging inland, but the back swamp, on lower ground away from the river, proved impassable, so he sent his men directly toward the enemy position, moving across the natural levee, that is the slightly higher ground right along the river. By late afternoon, the Federals were within sight of Fort Hindman's landward defenses, which were little more than a line of rifle pits extending about 700 yards westward from the fort over to impassable swampland. In front of the Confederate earthworks was an abatis of tangled trees and a shallow ditch. Shortly after noon the next day, January 11th, the ironclads Baron de Kalb, Cincinnati, and Louisville, supported by the timberclads Lexington and Blackhawk, the latter with Porter aboard, closed in on Fort Hindman and opened fire. The storm of heavy shot and shell stripped away the fort's iron plating and pounded it into a shapeless mass of rubble. Then, when the fort surrendered around four o'clock, Porter turned his attention to the Confederate troops on the landward side. He directed the tinclads Rattler and Glide and the ram Monarch to squeeze past obstructions in the river and fire into the exposed rear of the rebel infantry's position. While Porter's gunboats hammered Fort Hindman, McClernand's troops stormed the fortifications. Sherman's 15th Corps was deployed on the Union right, and on the left was McClernand's 13th Corps, led by Brigadier General George Morgan. Because the approach to the Confederate works was constricted between the river and the swamp, only about one-third of the Federal infantry actually got into the fight. The brunt of the battle was borne by the divisions of Brigadier Generals Frederick Steele and Andrew Smith. The Federal attack began in fine style, with massive infantry formations surging across the muddy ground. A soldier in the 25th Iowa recalled every man in his regiment, quote, running with all his might, half drunk with excitement, and yelling as loud as possible. But this fierce-looking array did not stop the rebel balls, end quote. And indeed, when the long lines of blue-clad troops came within range of the Confederate defenders, a, quote, blaze of fire flashed like lightning along the rebel line. The storm of bullets, buckshot, and canister felled hundreds of Federals and brought the advancing lines to a halt. For a few terrible minutes, it seemed like Chickasaw Bayou all over again. But here, the Union troops, encouraged by their officers, reformed their lines and continued the assault. About the time the Federals reached the shelter of the ditch in front of the Confederate works, Fort Hindman ceased firing, and Porter's ships began shelling the Confederate infantry from behind. The Yankee troops saw white flags suddenly and unexpectedly flutter into view here and there along the rebel line. The Confederate commander, Churchill, was as surprised as the Yankees. The white flags were unauthorized, but once they started to wave, the damage was done. Firing sputtered to a stop as puzzled Confederates lowered their weapons. Taking advantage of the enemy's confusion and determined to seize the moment, 
Federal soldiers scrambled up out of the ditch and disarmed the defenders before they could change their minds. The Battle of Arkansas Post, wrote a Texan, was, quote, as fierce an engagement of six hours as has occurred during the war, end quote, and it certainly must have seemed like it to those involved in the clash. At a cost of 1,092 casualties, the Federals had overrun a stoutly fortified rebel position and captured almost 4,800 prisoners, which was roughly one-fourth of the total Confederate strength in Arkansas, Missouri, and the Indian Territory. Sherman observed that, quote, Vicksburg is going to be a hard nut to crack, but I think our affair at the post of Arkansas will help some. End quote. And he was right. The loss of Arkansas Post struck the reeling Confederate establishment in the Trans-Mississippi a hard blow. It removed any potential threat to the Union lines of communication and supply on the Mississippi River, cost the rebels troops they couldn't afford to lose, and opened the Arkansas Valley to invasion. The defeat also extinguished any lingering hope that Jefferson Davis might work up the political courage to order Holmes to send reinforcements to Vicksburg. With Missouri gone and Arkansas and Louisiana going, the security of Vicksburg must now depend solely on Confederate resources east of the Mississippi River. In the afterglow of his first victory, McClernand wanted to continue up the Arkansas River to the state capital of Little Rock. He lost sight of the fact that his objectives were the capture of Vicksburg and the reopening of navigation on the Mississippi River, not the conquest of the Confederate Trans-Mississippi. However, low water in the Arkansas proved to be a more formidable obstacle than Fort Hindman, and McClernand concluded that Little Rock wasn't within his grasp. He contented himself with sending a raiding force up the White River in eastern Arkansas and settled down to await developments. That meant the Army of the Mississippi, also known as the 13th and 15th Corps of the Army of the Tennessee, and with both a defeat and a victory to its credit, was temporarily stalled in Arkansas. Meanwhile, when Grant had learned of the defeat at Chickasaw Bayou, he'd hurried preparations to move McPherson's Corps down the Mississippi to join Sherman. But a few days later came word that McClernand had arrived on the scene and assumed command of Sherman's expedition and went off to the west to attack Arkansas Post. At this, Grant irritably informed Halleck that McClernand had, quote, gone on a wild goose chase to the post of Arkansas, end quote. Grant angrily ordered the wayward general to return to the Mississippi at once and reminded him that the capture of Vicksburg was the sole purpose of the army. But then Sherman informed Grant that there were actually sound military reasons for the attack on Arkansas Post and that he and Porter had approved of the expedition. Well, this information from Sherman put things in a different light for Grant, and combined with a fuller understanding of the magnitude of the Union victory, 
caused Grant to tone down his criticism of McClernand. Sherman concluded his letter with a plea for Grant to take personal command of the expedition, but he need not have worried. Grant was already on his way, arriving at the mouth of the Arkansas River on January 18, 1863, and assuming command from a very unhappy McClernand. McClernand's short-lived Army of the Mississippi was no more, but Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee was about to return to Vicksburg. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Army of the Tennessee returned to Vicksburg at the end of January 1863. McClernand's and Sherman's troops disembarked at Young's Point, Milliken's Bend, and other locations on the west bank of the Mississippi above DeSoto Point. McPherson's Corps landed farther upriver near Lake Providence in extreme northeast Louisiana. The weather was abysmal. Cold rain fell for days on end and transformed the low-lying landscape into a vast swamp. Union soldiers pitched their tents atop the narrow levee next to the Mississippi River or on the occasional islands of slightly higher ground that dotted the waterlogged countryside. The result was an archipelago of misery. Wells and latrines were impossible, so soldiers drew drinking water and relieved themselves at random along the muddy shorelines. Not surprisingly, illnesses of every description swept through the miserable camps. A soldier in the 67th Indiana said, Some have the chills and a good many the diarrhea, and none of them seem to be in very good spirits. Hundreds of men died within weeks. With so little of the landscape above water, the living shared the high ground with the dead. A man in an Iowa regiment reported, The levee for long distances is full of new-made graves. 
This is a hard place for a sick man. He must have plenty of grit or die. On one occasion, the river rose over the levees and forced thousands of men and animals back aboard the transports, which tied up to treetops or steamed around aimlessly until the land reappeared. The situation gradually improved as the Federals adjusted to their amphibian existence. But throughout February and March, newspapers in the Midwest received a stream of mildewed letters from demoralized soldiers telling of the dismal state of affairs. Editors and politicians far from the scene grumbled about military incompetence and demanded that changes be made. The chorus of complaints eventually reached the ears of those in the highest levels of the Lincoln administration. By this time, Halleck had overcome his initial jealousy and doubts about Grant and was solidly in his corner. However, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was not yet convinced Grant was the man for the job. It requires some effort to recall that in early 1863, roughly halfway through the war, Grant's record was decidedly mixed. His early victories at Forts Henry and Donelson had been followed by the near disaster at Shiloh, the fiasco at Holly Springs, and the failure at Chickasaw Bayou. Equally disturbing were persistent reports of alcoholism. And so, with the Army of the Tennessee stuck in the mud in front of Vicksburg, Stanton wanted an independent observer to report on the progress of the campaign and on the qualities of the commanding general. The man he chose to send west was Charles Dana. Dana was a former prominent newspaper journalist and editor who had worked for and been fired by Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune. Dana owed his job at the War Department to Stanton, who had hired him as an assistant after Greeley had terminated the outspoken managing editor of the Tribune for his zealous editorials defending Stanton. Now, as a civilian at the War Department, Dana was a self-styled military expert, and Edwin Stanton's wishes were his command. And what Stanton wished in early 1863 was to know about Ulysses S. Grant. When Grant learned what Stanton was up to, he shrewdly decided to make Charles Dana an unofficial member of his staff. That meant that instead of observing matters from the outside, a pleasantly surprised Dana found himself very much part of Grant's headquarters inner circle and he soon shed all traces of objectivity. He sided with Grant against McClernand, and, in the months ahead, would convince Stanton that, despite the often discouraging outcome of Army and Naval activities in front of Vicksburg, it was only a matter of time before Grant succeeded in wresting control of the Mississippi from Confederate hands. While his soldiers suffered in their cheerless encampments and his staff converted Dana from a spy into a fan of their boss, Grant wrestled with the problem that had confounded Sherman, that is, how to come to grips with the enemy. 
The Confederate defenders of Vicksburg were in plain sight, but seemed hopelessly out of reach. Grant somehow had to get his army to the top of the bluffs on the east side of the Mississippi. But how? Meanwhile, when the Union army reappeared in front of Vicksburg, every Confederate from Pemberton to the lowliest private was surprised. The rebels were perplexed as they watched the Yankees spread out across the drowned Louisiana countryside across the river. Since the enemy would somehow need to cross the Mississippi to get at Vicksburg from the landward side, a rebel sergeant wrote that, quote, What their purpose is, no one seems to be able to fathom. Actually, Grant had tentatively decided on a course of action even before he reached the vicinity of Vicksburg. He wanted to move his army down the west side of the Mississippi River and cross to the east side below the Confederate stronghold. For the time being, however, such a move was impossible. The alluvial plain of the Mississippi was awash as a result of the winter rains, and the spring floods would only make matters worse. Stymied by nature, as much as by the Confederates, during the first three months of 1863, Grant explored a variety of options that offered at least some possibility of immediate success. Nonetheless, through it all, he never lost sight of the opportunities presented by a move to the South. For the time being, though, Grant had to face the fact that his Army of the Tennessee rushed downriver in such haste in December and January, was marooned on the Louisiana shore until April at the earliest. Local roads were submerged, which meant that if Grant was to move his army anywhere during the first quarter of the year, he would have to make use of the expanse of water and backwater byways extending for miles in all directions across the Mississippi Valley. Fortunately, the presence of Porter's Mississippi Squadron and a fleet of transports gave Grant an enormous potential mobility. So, how could he make use of his command of the water? The most direct course of action would have been to crowd everybody back aboard the transports, race around DeSoto Point, and storm Vicksburg. The Confederates had anticipated this possibility, however, and fortified the city's waterfront. Because an amphibious assault against a fortified shoreline was beyond the capability of 19th century armies, Grant didn't seriously consider such a move. An only slightly less direct approach would have been to rush the transports past Vicksburg and disembark the army downstream on the east bank. However, it didn't require a military genius to realize that the Confederate batteries could inflict potentially devastating losses on the unarmed transports packed with men and animals as they moved past the city. And even if such a passage somehow succeeded, there was then no way to maintain a reliable, waterborne line of communication and supply to the force downstream. That meant Grant's army would be isolated, deep in enemy territory, with shrinking stocks of food, forage, and ammunition. A possible solution to the problem posed by Vicksburg's batteries was the abandoned canal project across the base of DeSoto Point. 
If it could be completed, transports could drop downriver without having to run the gauntlet of fire at Vicksburg. The canal idea actually had an enthusiastic supporter in a very high place. That's because Abraham Lincoln was fascinated by engineering projects. Ever sensitive to such things, especially as they affected military matters, Halleck duly informed Grant of the president's personal interest in the project. And so, for both military and political reasons, Grant put 4,000 soldiers from Sherman's Corps and 2,000 contrabands to work scooping mud out of the half-drowned canal. Porter, though, had more experience with water than the president or the generals, and he didn't believe the Mississippi would flow through the canal, which was badly sighted. In addition, he was convinced the Confederates would simply move artillery down from Vicksburg to cover the lower end of the canal. In fact, as work on the canal progressed, the Confederates placed several guns on the opposite bluffs and waited for the Union working parties to come within range. Then in early March, the dam at the waterway's upper end gave way and filled it with water. Sherman's men labored for weeks to construct another dam and clear out the mess. Two steam dredges were brought down from the Midwest and put to work. Making rapid progress at first, when they came within range of the Confederate guns, they were driven off, just as Porter had predicted. Toward the end of March, Grant became disillusioned with the canal, but he kept the project alive, partly to please Lincoln, and partly to give Pemberton something to worry about. When all was said and done, though, Sherman aptly summed up the situation in a letter to Samuel Curtis when he wrote, Our canal here don't amount to much. At the same time, Grant put McPherson's troops to work trying to create a navigable route through a network of rivers and bayous in the bottomlands of northeast Louisiana. You see, Lake Providence, some 75 river miles north of Vicksburg, was connected to the Red River, 120 miles to the south, by a twisting passage consisting of Bayou Baxter, Bayou Macon, the Tensa River, and the Black River. If this route could be opened up to light draft steamboats, then Grant could float some or all of his men below Vicksburg without exposing them to the dangers of a desperate, desperate dash past the Confederate guns on the Mississippi. McPherson's men cut the levee between the Mississippi and Lake Providence and began clearing a channel through narrow, cypress-choked Bayou Baxter. It was an immensely difficult undertaking, and progress was slow. Nevertheless, Grant had more confidence in the Lake Providence project than any of the other schemes to bypass Vicksburg. In fact, as late as March 21st, he intended to send McPherson's Corps to the Red River via this roundabout route through the interior of Louisiana. While those Union engineering projects were underway, heavily laden Confederate steamboats continued to shuttle back and forth on the Mississippi and Red Rivers. 
Porter decided to send a portion of the Mississippi squadron down into the Vicksburg-Port Hudson corridor and halt this rebel river traffic. Porter directed 19-year-old Colonel Charles Rivers Ellett, yes, yet another of the Ellets, to pass Vicksburg in the ram Queen of the West and patrol the river beyond. Young Ellett was to capture or destroy every vessel he met and generally wreak havoc on Confederate riverborne commerce. Porter was reluctant to send down any of his trusty but cumbersome city-class ironclads, fearing that if the underpowered turtles went below Vicksburg, they would never get upriver again. Although Queen of the West was lightly armed, she was sturdy and fast, and Porter felt confident Ellet could run away from any danger. The operation got off to an auspicious start. At dawn on February 2nd, 1863, Queen of the West, covered from bow to stern with bales of cotton for protection, dashed past the surprised rebel gunners at Vicksburg and disappeared downriver. For a few exhilarating days, it seemed that Ellet might single-handedly sever Confederate ties to the Trans-Mississippi. On his initial foray downstream, he captured and burned three steamers loaded with supplies for Port Hudson. On February 5th, Ellet returned safely to the downriver side of DeSoto Point, which was occupied by Sherman's canal diggers. As Porter hoped, Queen of the West's presence below Vicksburg caused an uproar and brought Rebel River traffic to a halt. When news reached Natchez that a Yankee gunboat was on the loose, every vessel on the waterfront raised steam and fled up the Red River. A citizen of Vicksburg reported that the effect of the lone federal ram, declaring that, quote, The worst has befallen this place, and perhaps the entire Confederacy, since the arrival of the Yankee army on the peninsula across the river, is the interference of our communication with the Red River. A few days later, Ellet set out on a second raid down the Mississippi with orders to, quote, burn, sink, and destroy everything of military value he encountered. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Confederates in the Attic by Tony Horwitz. We were saddened this past week to hear that Tony Horowitz had died unexpectedly, apparently from a heart attack, while on a book tour. Uh, he was in Washington, D.C. on Monday promoting Spying on the South, his newest book, when it happened. Many of you are probably familiar with him from his most popular book, Confederates in the Attic, but he also had an excellent book on John Brown's raid titled Midnight Rising. Well, anyway, we wanted to just give a tip of the hat to Tony Horowitz this in this week's episode. As you know, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to our Patreon page and to our Tee Public storefront. Patreon is where you sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade, like CC, Norman, Michael, David, and Greg did this past week. 
and we thank them for their support of the podcast. And thanks to everyone who went to Tee Public and bought some t-shirts and other podcast stuff this past week. We also appreciate your support. Uh, yep, right now there are nine different designs that you can choose from there on our storefront. Right now the official listener design is by far the most popular, but we've also sold quite a few of the Abraham Lincoln signature, which, being Lincoln fans, makes us happy. Okay, and that's about it for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the Vicksburg story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.